seat. As you're on your way down, will you please show some love once again for these folks? They've been cranking it out for services. Good morning, everybody. I guess in a little bit, soon to be afternoon, you all would have been the last at the tomb on that resurrection morning. I'm going to tell you that because you were thinking about brunch. Ah. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jason. Special welcome to those of you who might be with us for the first time. So glad to have you. So we are standing in the tradition that has been centuries long. There are millions of Christians gathering all over the planet to celebrate what is the most significant event in all of human history. And as I say that, you might be thinking, could that possibly be true? Well, if Jesus did what he said he was going to do, then that really does change everything. I mean, it's almost as if nothing else matters. So perhaps you know some Christians and you think they're pretty nice people, but they're really fixated on this idea of life after death. And for good reason. Let me explain it to you. Christianity rises or falls on the resurrection, period. And the Bible is brutally honest, brutally honest with this fact. The early followers of Jesus knew this. And remarkably, this wasn't something they shied away from. In fact, they actually leaned into it hard. Let me read to you. One of these writers from the first century, a man named Paul, writes this. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. The word vain literally means useless. In other words, for the last 30 years, what I've been doing, completely useless if Christ was not raised. Uh, but he takes it further. More so, your faith, Christian, is also useless if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. In fact, he presses it a little bit further in the next few verses. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only. So this is an interesting phrase. He says, some people find hope in Jesus just for the here and now while they're on the planet. And in this sense, there isn't too much that sets Jesus apart from those who, let's say, write self-help books or something like that. Right, but by the way, if you go to like Barnes and Noble or you go to the library, have you noticed how huge, how big the self-help section of the bookstore is? It's massive. And interestingly, every year it keeps growing. Why? Because it seems like we haven't figured out how we can help ourselves, right? So we have to keep writing and trying to figure it out. You'd think we'd figure it out by now. If our hope in Jesus is just for the here and now, then, well, he actually goes on to say, we are of all people most to be pitied. I mean, that's a pretty pathetic word. So because the resurrection is so crucial, everything hinges on the resurrection. If it didn't happen, essentially what he's saying is, all you Christians are naive, gullible, and perhaps even stupid for believing in perhaps a liar or a hoax, oh, definitely would be the greatest hoax in all of human history. And we should just kind of pat you on the head and send you along your little naive, gullible way, Christian. 
But the author really leans into it by saying this. He says, but in fact, this is interesting, right? Because he talks about this supernatural event as if it was a fact. Why would he say that? You're going to find out in a moment. If, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, well, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So now he's using language that would be familiar with his readers in the first century. The phrase fallen asleep is a, a euphemism. It's a kind way of referring to those who have died. And the word first fruits, well, it makes sense. It's like if you have a garden and or let's say you have a fruit tree, like you have an orange tree. The first fruits of that orange tree, are, they're going to produce oranges. An orange tree will only and ever produce oranges. So if it produces oranges in that first season, every season after that, it's going to produce oranges. So what he's saying is because Jesus was the first one resurrected, there will be other resurrections. But it starts with him because he's the only one who's ever had power over death. And since he has power over death, what that means is, think it through now, he can extend that power to whoever he wants. That's why he says he's the first. He says, but in fact, it actually happened. Now, what I want to do is I want to take just a few minutes. I want to go back in time with you, 2,000 years, to the events surrounding the resurrection. Because what we have in our hands are these eyewitness accounts, these biographies inspired by the Spirit of God, but they're biographies written about Jesus. And the information, even the details, they're overwhelming. So if you're a skeptic, maybe you're a skeptic. Here's what I'm going to ask of you. If you, if you would just please be open-minded and open-hearted enough to receive what the Bible says, I think there are going to be, there are going to be certain imponderables that will confront you. And then it's up to you with what you want to do with them. So when Jesus was walking the planet, <laughs> he made some crazy, bold, audacious claims. I'll give you one of them. He said, destroy this temple, and he's referring to his body. And in three days, three days, I am, I'm coming back. Now, the thing about this statement is that it wasn't made in secret or in private. It was a public statement. So many people heard it, which means he could be held accountable for it. See, only in Christianity, no other worldview, no other faith system is quite like this. Only in Christianity do you have the bar so extremely high. No other leader made this kind of claim. And the thing about this claim is that it can actually be proven right or wrong. You realize that. So, so this is a public statement. People are listening. And all you have to do, a short 20, 25-minute walk from the center of Jerusalem to the place where they laid Jesus on day one, two, three, four. It puts an end to Christianity. And by the way, Jesus had enemies, and they wanted nothing more than to do just that, to expose him as a fraud. On day four, you roll the stone away and you produce a dead body and it's over. Christianity doesn't exist. And by the way, let's, let's, be, uh, let's be candid about it. Even at the time of Jesus, there were some who came on the scene and said, I'm your Messiah sent by God. None of those individuals ever got any traction. Why? Because they died and they remained dead. 
something happened. Something happened with Jesus. Something happened that took this fledgling group of Christ followers and just just fanned these little embers into flame. There is only one reasonable explanation, and that reasonable explanation is actually supernatural. Jesus did what he said he was going to do, and then he backed it up. He actually appeared before people, and they became convinced. So Christians did not shy away from the resurrection. They didn't talk about it as if it was this this event that, well, nobody's really going to believe in this. It's going to be hard to believe, so we'll keep that part of the secret. No, they actually said, the reason why we're here declaring this message is because Jesus did it. So because of that, yeah, we can't help but be bold. We can't deny the fact that he is who he said he was. And within 300 years, Christianity would actually become the religion of the Roman Empire. So what I'd like to do is take you to the actual grave itself, right? We have several biographers that write about it. And again, they write as, as firsthand witnesses over the three-day, three, four-day period and what follows. And Matthew was one of those men selected by Jesus, had a front row seat to his ministry for three years. And here's how he concludes his story of the life of Jesus. It says, now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, there's two Marys that show up. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they went to see the tomb. So the Jews didn't name their days in the way that we name days. They numbered them. So the first day of the week would be equivalent to our Sunday. It's early in the morning. The two ladies are on their way to pay their respects to Jesus. These two very, very interesting women. For example, Mary Magdalene. Magdalene is not her last name. Magdalene represents where she's from. Mary was from the town of Magdala. Therefore, she was Mary the Magdalene or Mary Magdalena. So she arrives at the tomb remembering who Jesus is and what, she, what he has done in her life. Because this was a woman that was tormented, abused, rejected. When she first met Jesus, we're told that she has not one, not two, not three, but seven demons. And if you read what happens to people who are tormented by demons in the New Testament, just one will tear you apart. (laughs) I mean, it's going to unwind you and bring you to a lowly place. And so she has seven. And she encounters Jesus, and the power of Jesus' words heal her. And she's like, I'm a groupie. I'm a Jesus groupie. You know what I mean? Like, I'm a fan. I'm all in. How could I not be? I'm loyal. He changed my life. So perhaps her and the other Mary are sharing these stories about Jesus. They're wanting to pay their respects at the tomb. Because, by the way, none of the early followers of Jesus really anticipated resurrection, although they should have because they heard Jesus talk about it. But it was such a fantastic event that they really had a hard time believing it to be true. 
okay? So the women are about to be shocked by what's, what's, what they're going to see. But then Matthew gives us a little bit of the backstory of what's actually happening at the tomb itself. Verse 2, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came, rolled back the stone, and then sits on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. So people have a goofy view of angels today, but the word angel literally means messenger. Angels do God's work. And whenever they show up, humans are terrified. In fact, in pretty much every occasion that I can think of, when, he, when angels show up to, to humans, they have to say, hey, it's okay. Do not fear. Because what humans are experiencing in angels are a higher order of created being in this sense. They're incredibly powerful. It, it, only, it took only two angels to wipe out the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Just two. So they appear... And the guards are, they're terrified. But the angels typically have to say, don't be afraid, human. <laughs> don't be afraid. We come to you on behalf of God. We're his messengers. And here's the message of God to you. So this angel appears. But he doesn't say, do not be afraid. He leaves the guards in their fear. They're terrified. And they become like dead men. Now, let's talk about these guards. Because this is where the details are really important from a historical narrative. And by the way, I should say that the style of this writing is not in the style of fiction. If you're reading in the first century, you can immediately pick up the, the kind of the style of the writing. And so if someone wanted to put forth a fable or a fictional story, you immediately begin to pick that up because of the style in which it's written. This is not written in that style. This is written in the style of historical narrative. So he's just reporting the facts as history reveals them. Okay? So he uses a really interesting Greek word to describe the guards. I'll pronounce it for you. Okay? This is the Greek word. Kustodia. Kustodia. Now that sounds a lot like our English word custodian. That's actually where we get our English word custodian. Custodian is a caretaker. So what we learn about these guys is that they, they actually turn out to be like the Navy SEALs, like the Green Berets of their time, an elite force. They were highly trained, highly skilled to guard a small plot of land. The perfect group to guard the entrance to a tomb. Why were they there? Why would, there be, why would they position guards in front of the tomb of Jesus? He's this obscure Jew born in Podunk Town, Bethlehem, raised in a, the backwater area of Nazareth, and they're going to put guards in front of his tomb? Why? Because he had enemies that wanted to prove him wrong. How? Day four, everybody. Day four. All it takes is four days and a dead body, and Christianity is no longer a thing. That didn't happen. So the guards split, right? So this is what's happening. It's, it's all, all of this is, is part of the narrative that's happening behind the scenes. Tension turns back to the angel. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid. See, there it is. Don't be afraid, ladies, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. Because he has risen, just as he said. Remember, ladies, when he talked about destroy this temple three days, I'll raise it again? He wasn't joking about that. He wasn't just trying to flex. <laughs> he actually did it. Come. There's an invitation for you, girls. Come and see where he was. And what you'll discover is he's not there. Why, 
was the stone rolled away from the entrance of the tomb. It was not to let Jesus out. It was to let the ladies in so they could see. That invitation is still being made to people today. Come and see. People will say to me, well, you're a man of faith. Okay. I'm also a man of evidence. And I am the last man on the planet that is going to give my life to something I don't believe in, that I don't believe is true. Why would you do that? That would be foolish. So that's the invitation. Come and see. Come and fact check it, ladies. Remember that he told you he was going to do this. So the stone has been rolled away. Jesus is already gone. But the invitation is for you to come and see. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. And there you're going to see him. You're going to see him. See, I have told you. So the women go to the tomb. They're reminiscing. They want to pay their respects. This crazy event happens. Uh, you know, they're, they're confronted by this angel. Told the body is not there, but you're going to see him. And when you do, you know, when you see this empty tomb, then you go back and you tell the boys that Jesus is alive. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran. They run to tell his disciples. Now, here's what's really, really interesting about this account. The first people to give witness to the resurrection of Jesus were two women. Now, you may know, sadly and unfortunately, the testimony of women in the first century AD was not considered reliable, which is interesting that the author would include it. Because if you are fabricating a story and you want someone to believe, you want to convince somebody that your story is true, this is not how you write it. This is not the kind of evidence you bring. Well, how do we know? Who are the witnesses? Two women. We quickly dismissed. Not reliable. Why would you include those details? I'll tell you why. Because it's historical narrative. And in historical narrative, you write the facts as they are. And that's exactly what the author does. It also tells you that Jesus is for everybody. Uh, here are these two ladies. One of them horribly tormented, rejected uh, by society, an outcast. And Jesus says, yeah, here's the deal. These ladies are going to have the honor and the dignity and the privilege of not only being the first to see, but they are also the first to go and tell. See, first it's come and see, and then it's go and tell. More about that in a second. So further proof it really happened this way. Verse 9, and behold, Jesus actually met them and said greetings, and they came up and took hold of his feet, and they worshiped him. Then Jesus came to them and said, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. I think this is really remarkable because if you know the backstory, for Jesus to say, ladies, now that you've encountered me, it's like game on. You can't deny this anymore, right? Uh, now go and tell the disciples. Now that's, not, that's actually not what he says. He says, go and tell my brothers. Brothers. This is a term of endearment, which is remarkable because these are the same men that abandoned Jesus at his arrest and crucifixion. They split. In fact, Peter denied knowing Jesus not once but three times. You know what, you know what he, Jesus doesn't say? All right, girls, go back and you tell those cowards that I'm going to see them again. And when I do, Jesus doesn't say that. 
Jesus doesn't say, go back and tell those traitors, especially that one Peter, we're going to have a conversation. He doesn't say that. He says, you know, these are my brothers. And even though they abandoned me, and this is the heart of God, by the way, toward humanity, even though they have abandoned me, I will not abandon them. You go back and you tell my brothers, we're going to meet up again. There's another biography of Jesus written by what many to believe, many believe to be Jesus' best friend, a man named John, nicknamed John the Beloved. And here's how we know, we think that he's probably Jesus' closest friend, because when Jesus is being crucified, his heart is for his mother, and he wants to take care of mom while he's gone. And he looks at John and says, John, behold your mother. John, take my mom as your mom. In other words, John, will you take care of mom for me? Now, that's a job you're going to entrust to a best friend. So John also had a front row seat to the life of Jesus. He writes his own Holy Spirit-inspired biography. And, um, and he, uh, he actually tells us that a de- one little interesting detail that, that happened between Mary Magdalene and this individual in the garden. So what, she encounters this man. And she's still struggling to wrap her mind around what is, where is this, where is Jesus? You know, like the tomb, empty tomb. And so she encounters this man and and she mistakes him for, she thinks he's the gardener. And well, the gardener's out and about. The gardener knows everybody's secrets, right? Who comes and who goes and who's, who's been around the tomb. And so she says, hey, where's Jesus? If you know where they've taken his body, will you please tell me? Because we want to go, we want to pay our respects. She doesn't recognize him as Jesus immediately. Why? Because she's not thinking resurrection. Again, important point. The Bible's really bold in its, in its claims. It's not like Jesus was raised from the dead and everybody was like, party! Everybody was like, really? Even the closest followers like, was it really? Is this really happening? His own disciples, after his crucifixion, they're gathered together in a room. The text says the door was locked. And they're like, they just killed our leader. They nailed him to a cross. Boys, what does that mean for us? Like, what's coming next? How's this going to go down? And then something happens that literally does turn them from cowards into men who will die the death of martyrs, actually men who, who will be tortured for their belief in the resurrection. And so many people believe that this whole thing has been a hoax. Well, isn't it interesting? The Bible actually speaks to that as well. So we get some insights. Verse 11, while they were going, behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests, these are religious leaders that wanted Jesus crucified. They hated him because he kept pointing out their hypocrisy and they thought they were close to God. They thought it went from God to them to everybody else. And Jesus is like, no, no, you guys have it wrong. You're, you're making it burdensome for the people. They said, you got to die. We need to get you crucified. And they succeeded. So they were the ones in charge. Some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. There's this earthquake, bright lights, supernatural being. We were freaking out. Oh, and one other little detail that we should probably include. The body's not there. What? The body isn't there. Okay. What's interesting is that the chief priests don't say, we don't believe you. They're like, okay, plan B. Let's do this. 
when they had assembled the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. In other words, this is a bribe. And they said, here's what we're going to say. Here's what you're going to say to people. Tell people his disciples came by night, stole them away while we were asleep. But we know this is going to be really bad for you because, you see, sleeping on the job for the custodia means your life. So if your boss finds out, don't worry. We have the kind of power and authority. We can smooth all that over for you. If it comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him, keep you out of trouble. So they took the money, and they did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, fast forward a few days. Well, fast forward a few decades. We know, like I said earlier, the end game for the disciples. And that was torture, martyrdom. You don't suffer torture to suspend what you know to be a hoax, especially 11 individuals. At least one of those dudes is going to crack and say, just kidding, body's over here. Don't peel my skin off. <laughs> Let me take you to the corpse. But it's like what I said earlier. If you're open-minded and open-hearted, there's all these these pieces of evidence that you have to wrestle with when it comes to who Jesus is. So along the way, Jesus made another audacious claim. John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I'm the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And the people of his day hated him for that because it was just way too exclusive. And the same is true today. When you really drill down on it, Jesus said some, he said some really inflammatory things, kind of stuff that'll get you canceled for sure today. If Jesus was alive today, it would be hashtag cancel Jesus. I promise you. Hey, good luck with that. Good luck with that. Because this is why, this is why the resurrection is so important. The Apostle Paul said, if it didn't happen, pity you. But if it did happen, whoa, this changes everything. Why is Christianity a thing? Why is it? It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. Something happened. So it seems reasonable to me if you come back from the dead, you have the right to say that you are the only way to God. But why? Why death? There have been good moral teachers that have come on. A lot of people think of Jesus as simply a good moral teacher. There have been a lot of good moral teachers that have come on the scene before. None of them have been nailed to a cross. Gandhi, Buddha, good, good moralists to a degree, to a degree. Um, no, nobody ever wanted to crucify them. You didn't have thousands of people shouting, crucify, crucify. Why, why is that? Well, it's interesting because apparently this was all a part of God's plan for humanity. One giant rescue attempt, and here's how it goes. The Bible tells us something that we all know intuitively to be true about ourselves. So the question is, how honest are you going to be? Because the Bible says that to some degree, we're all a little jacked up inside. Let me put it in a modern context. We are all born into a dysfunctional relationship with the God who created us. And we are the cause of that dysfunction, not God. The source of our dysfunction is our overwhelming desire to establish ourselves as ultimate authority and to pursue our own desires and our own will above all others. In essence, it is our desire to place ourselves on the throne. Do we have acts of kindness? Certainly, but to a degree, to a degree. 
This is why the world is so jacked up. It just depends on, on the amount of influence you have. That, to that degree, you contribute to the downfall of, of the world and, and why things are so messed up. Uh, it's our selfishness. And in a word, a small word that you don't hear very often, that's what the Bible refers to as sin. And that's a problem. Because the Bible goes on to say that the wages of sin is death. You're like, oh, man, lighten up. Well, no, you can't. And here's why. Not only is that why the world is so jacked up, but ultimately, God is just. And he can't allow all of your junk to go unpunished. He can't allow all of Jason's wrongs and hurts and offenses. He just can't let those go. Otherwise, God would be like a, a judge that is totally disinterested. That's the Greek gods, totally disinterested in humanity. The God of the Bible is very personal, very personal, so personable that he sends Jesus to take upon himself all of your junk. And in return, you get eternal life. And so what happens is this remarkable thing. God is only bound by one thing. God is just and he is merciful. So watch this. The justice of God and the mercy of God, they collide. And they meet each other at the cross of Jesus. And what happens when those two things collide is forgiveness is given. So the justice of God is satisfied. The sin debt that you owed was paid through Jesus. The wages of sin is death. Jesus shed his blood because the life of a creature is in its blood. The mercy of God through Jesus says, well, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. I'm going to take that and place it on Jesus, who is sinless, perfect, could take the sins of the world on himself, absorbs them, dies in your place. That's why Jesus had to die. The motivation, there's a reason why John 3.16 is the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved. For God so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus comes in your place, dies on the cross. For those who believe in him, they have eternal life. So who is Jesus to you? What does it mean to you? you know, what is, who is Jesus to you? Uh, you don't come to Christianity because it'll make your life better, although it will. You don't come to Christianity because you feel like it's the right thing. You come to Christianity because it's true. The ultimate test of any view is its, is its livability. And God has woven into the fabric of human existence reality. And so in a post-truth culture where truth is like beauty, it's in the eye of the beholder, something can be true whether you believe it to be true or not. Who is Jesus to you? So I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes just to free you from any distractions because like, this is the most important part of our time together. Yeah, I know the resurrection claim seems outrageous. We know that. We get it. But as Christians, wow. God has secured a lot of evidence. So we live. We die by it. Those early believers, the invitation was come and see. And you will be convinced. And see, here's the deal. Many of you are convinced 
and that's where it stops. Because the invitation goes beyond come and see to go and tell. Go and tell. So that's an invitation to move beyond being convinced to being committed. Big difference between being convinced and being committed. To be committed is to go and tell. Matthew 28, if you've been around church, it's known as the Great Commission. That's, that's where Jesus sends the disciples out. You know that comes at the end of this passage. It's like, go and tell. That's what he's telling me. Go and tell. So here's what it means for you, Christian. Listen, be bold. Be bold. Why would you not be bold? You have the truth, and this world desperately needs to hear the truth. And if you're here and you're hearing these things for the first time, or maybe you're hearing them in a way you've never heard before, and you're wrestling with it, let me just tell you, you're not here by accident. The Spirit of God is speaking to you. That's what the Spirit of God does, just drawing people. See, you were created to be in a relationship with God. And so there are things that are going to be spoken that are going to rub you like sandpaper. That's good for your soul because it's, that's, that's the hard edges being smoothed over. That's what, God, that's what the, 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 the words of God do to you for your good. But the Spirit of God is also that softening agent drawing you in. And don't let your stubbornness stand in the way. And the reason why I say that is because I have, I have experienced that in the past. Don't let it stand in the way. Father, for every, every heart in the room, just super thankful that they are here. Lord, for those of us who are hearing this again, God, just can it be absorbed just into our being? We come, we see, and then you commission us to go and tell. Lord, we want to be bold in that. Like, like the disciples became bold. And Lord, for those who are still thinking and maybe pondering the imponderables. Continue to do your work in only, as only the, in a loving and gentle way as you did with so many of us. We ask it for our good, ultimately for your glory, and we pray in the power and resurrected name of Jesus Christ. And God's people said, amen.